The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Kling with 88.1 WKNC, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm here with Shirvan Kasim, the Assistant Director of the Creative Writing Program here at NC State University. Now, you are originally from Dubai, correct? Yeah. Yes, and you traveled for education, correct? Yes. Yes. What was that like? It was more and less of a culture shock than I expected. Um, I grew up moving back and forth between Dubai and Minnesota, where I had family. And my expectation was always that after graduating high school, I would go to the United States for college. I was already familiar with it, but I just wasn't familiar with how college would be in the United States. It's different to being a kid in the United States. It's being different to being a high schooler in the United States. And it was a great experience, despite the culture shock. It was just, it was, it was different in a very good way. You say despite the culture shock. Uh, what does culture shock mean to you? The culture shock was uh, several things to me. So even though I was familiar with Minnesota, I went to a small college in a very small town in rural Minnesota. And that was as different as you can get to going to a high school in very urban Dubai. It took a bit of getting used to to have all these trees and prairie grassland around you. And living in a town with a population of just 60,000 people as opposed to 2 million that Dubai had at the time. So it took a little bit of getting used to. I got to experience that small town America. It was a kind of small, it was Northfield, Minnesota. So it was a kind of small American town with white picket fences, small stores on the main street, um, exactly what you would imagine small town America to be like. And it was a great time. Talk about the population density. Uh, Were you kind of thankful for the elbow room to move around or did you kind of miss having uh, the flow of all those people around you? For a long time, I missed having that flow of people around me. It was very hard to get used to not having people jostle around you at every second. And there were times when I would go pretty often to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, which was about 60 miles away, just to get that sense of being lost in the city from time to time. But very soon I got used to the idea of having my own space and having people smile at you every time you pass them on the street, whether you know them or not. And I got very comfortable there. This may sound odd, but the first thing I did when I went up to the Twin Cities was find myself a big fat store like a Target or a supermarket, which they didn't have in Northfield, Minnesota in the late 90s when I was there. And just being lost in this sea of consumerism, as strange as it sounds, was kind of comforting to me coming from Dubai. So that's what I sought out first. Definitely. No, you say that sounds odd, but that doesn't sound odd at all to me uh, because... A lot of people get used to that kind of experience of going to these big, wide-open areas where you can just find things to purchase for yourself. It, it, Yes, you're disappearing into a river of consumerism, but there is some level of, uh, of self-control and independence there. 
There absolutely is. And there was a sense of being connected to the wider world, which, you know, despite the charms of living a quiet life in a small town, you don't really feel when you're in a, in a smaller environment. So I crave this sort of being connected to currents of commerce and, and culture and that I felt I was missing a little bit of in a small town. How does Dubai compare to the U.S. school system? Dubai has a very weird school landscape in that 80% of Dubai's population are immigrants or expatriates. So the population of native Gulf Arab citizens are about 20%. There is a public school system. It is taught in the Arabic medium. And for, for several reasons, most expatriates, most immigrants, send their children to private schools, which essentially follow the education system of whatever country that those people happen to come from. So, for example, there's a bunch of British schools, there are American schools, there are international schools, Indian schools, Japanese schools, French schools, you name it. Uh, the choice is there. So parents tend to send their children to one of those schools. Does that usually cause communities to kind of bunch up around these schools and kind of focus on their national origin? So you have kind of like a like Chinatown, like we would have in New York, but with a much more like large diversity, although New York does have a massive diversity of different communities in it. Yes, yes and no. Sometimes there is a bit of bunching up. But on the other hand, I think Dubai is such that, as with any big city, you tend to live in such close quarters to everybody that you t there's, a, there's a general mixing, whether you like it or not. And in general, with a lot of schools, the student body doesn't tend to be strictly divided by nationality. So I went to a British school, and while there were many British students at that school, there was a wide range of national origins. My parents are Sri Lankan. Uh, they moved to Dubai in the 70s. And so me being a, a child of Sri Lankan parents, I was in school with British kids, Lebanese kids, Indian kids, Dutch kids, you name it. With so many cultures uh, around you, was there ever like a situation, I hear about this a lot in Canada, where there is a very even split between English and French speaking populations. Did you often uh, try to find a common tongue, a, a lingua franca that was uh, effective for everybody? And what was that common tongue? Yeah, yeah. English is the lingua franca because uh, Dubai used to be a British protectorate uh, until 1971. So that history is there. I would say that of course, English is, is the lingua franca. Arabic is the official language, and that's widely spoken as well. There's also been a historically large Indian community, so Hindi and Urdu among the Pakistani community as well is widely spoken. Beyond that, there are large pockets of people who speak Tagalog, people who speak Bengali, people who speak Malayalam, uh, French. So there is definitely a melting pot of languages in Dubai, but generally, people speak English as a default when speaking to, to one another. English as a default, or perhaps Arabic, or perhaps Hindi. So those English, Arabic, and Hindi are the big three languages in Dubai. You mentioned a, a legacy of colonialism. Was that visible in the architecture, or in layouts, or, or perhaps in, in how people thought or acted? Yes, there's definitely a, a legacy in, in the sense that there's, for example, there's, Dubai is laid out in a grid system. Its architecture is, is quite a mix, actually. It's an interesting mix of, of course, the, the supermodern glass skyscrapers that you see in, in the news nowadays, but also a mixture of, of native Arab architecture, a, a bit of 
I would say, 20th century Middle Eastern, which you would see in places like Lebanon. One thing you don't see is, um, I would say, things like Victorian mansions. So I know that Dubai is well known for its, for you mentioned the architecture, and it's very sizable projects, uh, approaching megastructures in many cases. What does the skyline look like just traveling through? The skyline changes every second, it seems to me. When I was growing up, Dubai had its skyscrapers, but what is now downtown Dubai did not exist. It was essentially a, a salt plain in the suburbs. The historic downtown had its share of skyscrapers, but essentially a new downtown was constructed in what used to be the outskirts of the city. So the modern Dubaian skyline, what people see a lot of in the papers, is, uh, was constructed within the past 20 years. So even though Dubai had earlier skyscrapers, the, the sort of super skyscrapers that you, that you see and read about in the papers emerged in the early years of this century. Dubai's always had an ambition about it. Even before the discovery of oil, Dubai made its living being uh, an entrepot, uh, uh, a, a free port, uh, where people could do business as uh, without restriction. And Dubai culturally has this, in, in my mind, Dubai has a cultural desire to do better, faster, stronger. And I think it's this um, sort of ambition that leads it to do all of these things that we know it for. Uh, we've seen that a lot in other nations beyond Dubai where when when business is booming and money is flowing, a lot of projects uh, begin getting constructed more and more. I think uh, China has been working on, I remember their big push for hydroelectric and you see dams springing up all over the place. And America in its history has certainly had a lot of booms and busts when it comes to to those massive buildings. What was it like when you first came to the U.S.? I know that you've lived split between Minnesota and Dubai, but do you remember the first time? Is that too far back for you to, to picture? Not at all. The first time I remember was when I was four years old, visiting my aunt and my uncle and my cousin in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. They lived in a standalone house, which was kind of new to me because we lived in, a, in an apartment building in, in central Dubai. They lived in a, a, a single-family home on the bluffs overlooking downtown St. Paul. And in their backyard, there was a, a hill with apple trees growing above it. So if you've, anyone who's ever read Calvin and Hobbes will, will remember that those scenes of Calvin and Hobbes in that uh, American flyer-type cart thing rolling down the hill. And that's exactly what my cousin and I did. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And then where a few years later when I was seven, when I visited Minnesota for the first time in winter, we, we sledded the hell out of that hill. Always, yes. Yeah, lots of big spills. In fact, pretty much what I remember are the spills. But yeah, I'm still alive and I'm still I'm sitting here talking. Uh, I can confirm that he has all four limbs. Listening audience. Yes. I went to college. I went to a small liberal arts college in Minnesota and I majored, I double majored in political science and history. And my ambition initially was to become a diplomat and work in international politics, human rights, that kind of thing. It made sense. It was a good fit. And I thought I was really looking forward to it. And after I graduated college, I thought, okay, with a degree in poli-sci and history, I think pursuing law is, is a good idea. It's a natural fit. So I went to law school, specialized in international law with a focus on international human rights law. And I ended up practicing 
corporate and commercial law in Minnesota and then eventually in Dubai as well. At one point, sitting in my office, I realized that while I was still very much interested in the, in the law and its issues, what I really wanted to do was write novels. So I decided to quit. I decided to quit my job. I was in Dubai at the time, moved back to the United States, take a year off to apply to MFA, which is Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing Programs uh, at universities around the country, and, and take a shot at being a novelist. So even though I didn't have, I didn't have a degree in English or any kind of formal training uh, in, in creative writing, I took a shot at it and ended up right here at NC State. And I got to say that that was the best decision I've ever made. Uh, I'm very happy. I graduated from the MFA program. Uh, my plan was to stay in school forever, so I managed to f- convince the English department to let me stay on and teach. This is a very broad question, so feel free to explore it however you want. But how do you feel your past has informed what you're doing now? I think my past informs everything that I'm doing now in that a lot of what I like to put on paper in my, in my written work is essentially sharing with the world the details of living in Dubai not just living in Dubai, but living in Dubai, in a Dubai that largely does not exist anymore. Because with Dubai's changes of the past 20 years, the Dubai that I grew up in really no longer exists. It's a, it's a very different place now. And I feel that in terms of literature, in terms of the arts in general, they serve as a record of the human condition. And so I view my own work as an attempt to record the experience of being in Dubai, being from Dubai, from that point in time. I understand that, yeah. I, I actually understand the feeling of feeling like you're from a place that no longer exists. I'm from Portland, Oregon originally, and I traveled back there a few years ago on a trip with my parents. And there's that real strong sense of your, your nostalgia, your rose tint breaking when you actually see how things have changed over time. The houses were were clustered and packed together. My old neighborhood had like maybe a couple dozen new houses put in the yards between houses. And when you see that with your own eyes, you you get a real feeling that where you're from, who you are is still valid, but where you're from has has changed. Maybe not for the better, maybe not for the worse, but it does no longer exist. I can't imagine how that must feel for an entire nation like Dubai on that scale. Right. It's it's definitely a a, a strange and often unsettling experience to know that you can never really go back to the place where you're from because it, it exists in a, in a temporal sense. But at the same time, I think people can learn a lot from that record uh, of what we saw and what we experienced. I think it's very valuable, and I think it's, it's a source of insight for people who might not have grown up in Dubai but who have shared elements of that experience. What advice do you have for people with a air quotes, soft degree. And I know that I'm really saying the word soft a lot, but I don't mean that it disparages the actual degree itself. I myself am getting a soft degree. Uh, It's more a matter of people sometimes look at these degrees and don't really know what can be done with them. What did you do with it? I did exactly what I wanted with it. Uh, And let me backtrack a little. I think in my experience, I've seen a fundamental difference between university 
education in the United States and university education in every single country that, that I can think of. And that is that in America, students are required to take distribution classes, to take engineering classes or science classes or arts classes, regardless of major. And that's definitely a, a result of our emphasis on a liberal education, which is liberal with a, with a capital L, which focuses on training students to become citizens. I, I think the result of that is in the United States, because of the wide range of subjects and because of the emphasis on critical thinking, regardless of your major, I think what happens in the United States is that American university students are taught to be leaders in their respective fields, regardless of what that field is. Whereas students who go to universities in other countries run the risk of being trained to merely be employees. So here, I, in, in the United States, I don't think it matters at the end of the day what you major in, because regardless of what you're majoring in, you are being trained to be a critical thinker and a leader in your field. So I don't think it really matters what degree you have. When you come out of school with your bachelor's degree, you have a bachelor's degree in liberal education creative thought, and leadership, whether you realize it or not. And those skills can be applied regardless. Here in America, you see a lot of examples of people who studied X and then ended up being leaders in the field of Y. The fear of not being able to use your degree is being overblown because when you're in college, you are not being trained to be an, a worker or an employee. You are being trained to be a thinker and a leader. Do you think it's that fear that results in kind of a skill shyness where people have the tools they need but constantly think less of themselves and don't make that leap? I think, it's, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think in many cases students come to college not expecting to sit in classes, just listen to some professor drone on very boringly for several hours, do a final exam at the end of the day, get some grade, and then ca cash that in for a degree which they will then cash in for a job. And it doesn't necessarily work like that. Certainly there are some programs and tracks that do work like that, but even they require you to, to think outside of the box. So I think there's a, there's a disconnect between certain students' expectations and the reality of what life looks like after college. I think that on the one hand, what you learn in, a, in an American university what you learn in the classroom is only 50% of that university experience. The other 50% comes from, the, I'm going to use the word softer things, like getting to know your professors, getting to know your peers, your classmates, uh, taking part in extracurricular activities, taking part in college sports, taking part in the arts, all of those things, living life, and, and taking advantage of the opportunities that being in a college community would offer you makes the difference. For me, I was a first-generation college student, and for me, going into college was never just something that I looked forward to cashing in in return for a job, but it was my entry into the white-collar middle class. It was my entry into contact with people who made decisions as opposed to people who were just worked jobs. And so for me, I got my degree knowing that I was going to use it. I wasn't sure how when I was an undergrad, but I knew that I was gaining the skills to use that degree to do whatever it was that I chose at the, at the end of the day. And that definitely happened for me. I'm exactly where I want to be and I'm doing exactly what I want to do. It was definitely not easy, yes. Um, obviously there were challenges in the way of, of every sort. If 
from academic to personal to financial and all of these things. But at the end of the day, it all it, it all did work out for me. Is there something you would tell a younger you as you were trying to work your way up to where you're sitting now? Yes, I would say take even more time to look around and see what opportunities there are available to you beyond just sitting at, sitting down in class. Things like the job you get has very little to do with an application that you submit online, for example, and more to do with how you present yourself, how you sell yourself. And realistically, it has a lot to do with the people you know. And to learn how to present yourself as a well-rounded candidate, which you will be after having graduated from, a, from an American university, but also to have a sense of what you want, have a strong sense of what you want, but be open to other avenues as well. We've spoken a lot about that first 50%, the classroom, the studying, the exam at the end of the, uh, the, the marathon, I suppose. That letter grade, how valuable is that letter grade at the end of the day? It's very valuable and it's not valuable. So on the one hand, you will have employers and graduate schools and so on who will base admissions decisions strictly on a letter grade. And that's definitely true. However, there are people much more talented than I am, much smarter than I am, who, are, who had a worse letter grade than I did coming out of college. And yet, they too are doing exactly what they want to do. There's, of course, the historically uh, cliched example of Albert Einstein, who struggled uh, famously in mathematics before he went on to have a career in mathematics. And the beauty of America, as I've experienced it, is that America is definitely a society where people are always getting second chances. For me, I'm a person who's in my second career. My first was law. And that happens, in my experience, much less often outside of America where people figure out that they want to do something else or they want a second chance at doing something, and they've, they've gotten it here in America. You mentioned this second chance. You mentioned abandoning a few tracks, legal, diplomacy, for literature. What does literature mean to you? In the end, why was that the topic that fascinated you so much that you wanted to really devote a, a chunk of your life to it? Literature to me was a means by which I could address a lot of the intellectual, political, social ideas that I wanted to address as a lawyer, as a diplomat, as a statesman, and so on, in, in just a different way, in a way that gave me a bit more intellectual freedom to address in the ways that I wanted to. Um, I think law and literature are both very important in, in many of the same ways in that they ask, or rather they help us ask questions of ourselves and our societies, and how we think, how we do, how we behave towards one another. And literature gave me a chance to do what I wanted to do in a different way than law. And by literature, I mean creative writing as opposed to, to studying literature. What you wanted to do being exploring topics of society and, and, uh, and aspects of, of how people live their lives and things like freedom and opportunity and things like that. That's right. And, and even more personal things like family and friendship and, and, and all of those uh, quieter things in life as well. Those threads that like tie every human being's experiences basically together. Absolutely. Of course. So how does literature compare to other forms of art? Do you think it stands alone on its own side or do you think it's more of a foundational thing that other art forms have sprung and branched from? Or I am, I still consider myself very new to the arts in general. So writing and literature is, is my particular corner. 
from my experience and and not knowing very much about other arts, I would say that each one of them definitely has its own thing to say and do. What I think they all have in common is that they serve as an attempt to record things about the human experience that cannot be recorded through other forms such as uh, history or journalism. The arts and literature in particular serve as a means of recording and analyzing things that cannot be recorded and analyzed through other means. Exploring perhaps the maybe of human existence as opposed to the was or or could be. Yes, yes. And giving voice to things like emotions, sensations, experiences that cannot be expressed more directly through things like straight-up recordings or um, essays or things like that. There's this undercurrent of human sensation of experience that can only be transferred from one person to the other through the arts. Do you think literature would be as successful as as we deem it now without the existence of history and and written facts and all those things? Absolutely not. No, no, no. All of those things are are completely interdependent on one another. I only ask because there is sometimes a belief that, oh, the creative human spark of, of consciousness and knowledge is so far beyond the actual physical world, but I personally disagree with that, and I wanted to hear your thought too. I'm on the same page. I think all of those are interrelated and one cannot exist without the other. I've also known that you have an interest in film and uh, and video games and things like that. How does literature compare to that? What do one thing do that another one can't and what do they both do that the other kind of interacts with? I think what film and literature have in common is that essentially they're forms of narrative, of, of, of storytelling. And increasingly, video games are very quickly entering that sphere as well. I like to think that I'm part of the first generation of people who grew up playing video games. I think that's approaching uh, how it actually is, at least the more modern interpretation before when it was, um, or, or after that, that age of being a very, very basic medium. Right. Um, and so I regard film, literature, and video games as different aspects of the same sort of urge to tell stories and each one of them does it in different ways but I think the important thing is that each one of them presents a different avenue by which we as humans can collect and discuss and analyze who we are and what makes us tick and who are we what does make us tick I think then that is that is the big question I'm not sure that we will ever get to an, to a definitive answer but the arts definitely are key to us getting. A lot of philosophical groups believe that it's not a matter of the destination, but rather just constantly searching and what do we find as we search? I think if we if we find a destination, that's great. But for the time being, I think we might have to settle with realizing that we won't get there, at least in our lifetime. So the process of creative work means a different thing to everybody. It can be a real challenge. Uh, Hemingway wrote about putting his blood into his work and, and bleeding all over the typewriter in order to get things out and how the editing process was a nightmare. And then you have people like Stephen King who, during interviews, discusses just how easy it is and how you just write and you write and you write and there's no difficulty involved. It's just your mind to paper done. What do you think? the creative? I hate people like Stephen King for saying things like that because <laughs> it's not, it's, it, I know it works for some people like that, but definitely not for me. It's, it's always been a, been a struggle Partly because there's so much I want to say and 
I want people to understand what I have to say in exactly the way that I want to say it, that I struggle over the words that I put on paper all the time. Um, I wish I were more like Stephen King, who, who has this, uh, what seems to be a seamless connection between his, his mind and heart and the hand that he writes with. Usually when you know you've hit a story right, it should flow from you. But there are times when it doesn't flow quite as easily as you want it to. It's there in your head. But it doesn't flow from your head to your hand in the way that you would like. But regardless, so many writers overcome that and make it happen. So it's it's nothing to be worried about. Either either you are like Stephen King or you're not. Okay. It's just a part of the process. And there's no reason to be discouraged if that process is sometimes difficult to you. What are some of your favorite things that you see in prose? Good characters. A lot of suspense. I'm kind of torn between, I read a lot of commercial fiction, a lot of science fiction, and a lot of literary fiction as well. And both of those things do, in the past, have done different things for me. The commercial side has catered to my sense of wonder where you're transformed into some sort of, you're taken into some sort of science fiction world. Um, you see possibilities for the future and all of those things. Whereas literary fiction has traditionally shown me a more introspective side of human society, um, uh, where you stop and think more about the present, about intangible things like personal relationships. Um, obviously, now there's an increasing mix between what we see as what we've traditionally seen as commercial fiction, things like science fiction and literary fiction. So we're seeing a large amount of really good literary science fiction come out these days. I have seen good things on both sides, and I enjoy seeing people push the envelope regardless of what they're writing, giving me something new to experience, giving me something new to think about as I read that work. That always gets me every time. Thank you so much for coming in, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. That was Shervan Kasim the assistant director of the creative writing program here at NC State. And I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1, I on the Triangle, and I'm signing off. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1, I on the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Jennifer Hall, the executive director of the American Lung Association in North Carolina. So we hear a lot of uh, conversation and talk and, and warnings about the risk of flying debris or floodwaters how does the lung enter the picture? Well, the lung is affected by anything that's traveling via air and even through the water that we drink. And with the floodwaters in particular, that sewage has toxins in it and it has all kinds of things that could be very harmful to your breathing, particularly if you're ingested them. They can make a breathing ground for bacteria and viruses and mold. So you have to just be aware that things that at one point might have been Healthy for you today would not be healthy because it's contaminated due to the, the floodwaters and the sewage and toxins that are in those waters. And where would a lot of these toxins be coming from in this sort of event? Well, you know, honestly, it's things that like get pushed into the water as a result of the storm. So it could be oil, it could be diesel um, or gasoline, garbage, honestly, dead animals, chemicals. They all get caught up in that floodwaters and then that becomes toxic water. And then, of course, in the air, you have the different bacteria that then, then breed from that as a result of growing in the damaged water. So that, that all that bacteria and mold becomes airborne, 
And then if it's inhaled, it puts people at risk, particularly those with lung disease. Certainly something you don't want to be drinking, but also maybe people don't consider the fact that it might be evaporating into the air and getting into your lungs? Yes, individuals can definitely do a lot to minimize any of the damage of lung disease as a result of the storm. And, and just preparing for themselves, if they know that they have chronic lung disease, they could take a lot of precautions up front so that that would minimize any risk to them if they should lose power or if they have to evacuate, that they have all the supplies that they need to take care of their lung disease. As for preparations, you mentioned a COPD travel pack. What would that look like? So for people with COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, that is they need to make sure that they have any of their prescriptions or their medications. Now is a good time to refill their prescriptions if they don't have at least a week's worth of supplies. You know, that's important that they have the medications are up to date. Um, their delivery devices like oxygen therapy, insurance cards. They might want to also include copies of their EOPD action plan or if they have asthma, their asthma action plan. And then their peak flow meters and any other things that they use on a daily basis that help them to manage their disease. Action plan is a plan and a course of action that they determine with their doctor on various steps that they take during various degrees of their disease state. So as it progresses, there's different steps that they take to kind of minimize the effects of their disease, whether it's asthma or COPD. So there's a lot of people who are on oxygen supplements and if power goes out, they may not be able to use their device, so it's important that they have a backup source. But they also should check with the product manufacturer to make sure that backup source is compatible to their device because, you know, a lot of people are using that as um, on a daily basis, and if they don't have that, that's where complications can come in. People can give their, their power company and their emergency responders kind of a heads up that they have special circumstances that might require those, those services, the, the medical services and stuff like that, reach out to them first because they have compromised health issues. And that might flag your home and family for possibly getting a better priority if situations of risk or hazard to your health occur? Exactly. So if they chose to stay behind or had, were unable to evacuate for various reasons, but they did inform their um, emergency responders or power companies that they are stuck in their home and they have these, these compromised health issues, they would be p placed on some priority list. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really helpful tip and I think a lot of people are not aware that they could do that in advance. And I think that that's the trick to any hurricane or regardless of what your lung health is, is that preparing in advance is the best way to navigate your way through that. Exactly. You mentioned not cooking indoors. So with the rain and storm outside, it might seem uh, attractive to cook indoors to keep your food out of the, the moisture and the wind. Why is that a bad idea? Well, when you burn fuel, like a lot of people tend to take in, or some people take in their grills, their outdoor grills, and cook with charcoal or propane gas, and that releases toxins, and that can actually expose you to carbon monoxide, and then you get carbon monoxide poisoning, and you could die. So it, that's regardless of whether you're in excellent lung health or not, that you should not ever bring in outdoor propane or charcoal grills into your home to heat or cook. And you wouldn't really get any warning about this carbon monoxide if it was in your home. 
Yes, I think most people are aware or should be aware that that's a silent killer and there's no smell to it. There's no way to detect carbon monoxide poisoning until it's too late. So for everybody, regardless of their, their lung health, should be aware that they should never take in a charcoal or a propane a grill into their home as a cooking or heating method. If you do have lung health issues, whether it's asthma, COPD, lung cancer, or any other um, lung diseases that are out there, or even if you have healthy lungs and are feeling some of these symptoms like wheeziness or shortness of breath, um, maybe difficult, difficulty taking in a full breath, chest heaviness, lightheadedness, dizziness, these are all signs that um, you know, your breathing has been somewhat compromised, and that's where you should reach out to a medical professional. So when you're reaching out, who should you try to contact? If it's a true medical emergency, then 911 is always the best source to um, reach out to. During a hurricane like um, Dorian and when there are, when there, the resources are kind of compromised because they're responding to a lot of emergency situations, 911 is always still your best source. But you can also reach out to the American Lung Association and to the Lung Helpline, which is 1-800-LUNG-USA. And they could provide some information from, um, from our nurses and respiratory therapists and, and give some guidance there. But, of course, if it's an emergency, 911 is the way to go. Thank you very much for coming on. That was Jennifer Hall, the Executive Director of the American Lung Association North Carolina. And I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1 I on the Triangle.